Because to be white in 1963, and I would argue still today, is to have the luxury, the privilege, if you will, of not having to know black and brown truth. You can be oblivious to the reality of people of color and suffer no consequence. Very, very segregated country. Millions of white Americans live in places where they rarely see anyone of a different race. You're listening to Your Neighbor's Hood, a podcast for uncomfortable culture conversations, specifically about race. Do your thing, Christina and Jackie. Hello, it's Christina. And Jackie. <laughs> yes, and we are Your Neighbor's Hood, talking about what's good in our hoods. Yeah, what's good in your hood. Um, You want me to start? Oh, I was going to say, because we probably have people who are brand new listeners. Yeah, so that's right. So, welcome. If you've just joined us, or hit that subscribe button, or given us a review, thank you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, we just finished. That will be what's good in my hood, I oh, would go ahead. say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't hold, know if I stole it from you or not. But um, last week we were on Barbara Hamley's show, um, Another View, if you're local um, in Hampton Roads. It's our local NPR, local NPR show. And it was a great experience. Um, a lot came out of it. I sweat a lot. I was nervous. <laughs> but um, it really just helped us connect more with our audience. And I was just so grateful to be there. And I think the conversation went really well. No, I will say, yeah, I think that's all I have to say, actually. Yeah, same here. I'll yeah. echo that, that it was, a, it was a great and fruitful, hear that dog go, um, <laughs> great. It was a great and fruitful interview, really excited. But I have a personal what's good in the hood. So Friday night, my close friend calls me at 10.30 at night and said, I'm picking you up at 11 o'clock. Oh, how fun. I love stuff like that. Oh, oh my God, I love stuff like that. She's like, pack a bag, pack an overnight bag, because we're going to D.C., we're going to a concert, and I need you to be ready. And I was like, okay, all right. So I pack my bag, she picks me up, and we're driving. I have no idea who we're going to see. I don't know what. She's like, okay, this is our tell. We get, she's like, I'm going to get dressed. And I'm just like, I want to ask. I know she wants to tell me. Don't ask. Because everybody knew, except for me. Okay. And we're at the concert, and I'm still, like, trying to figure it out. You know how in the beginning of a concert where they're playing music, and usually it's the music from... The yeah. people that will be on. Like so it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. And I'm just sitting there. She's just like snickering. <laughs> I was like, this is... And then I'm trying not to get overwhelmed because I've had to um, really live by the fact that uh, there's a saying that in, in relationships, no matter what they are, there are gardeners and there are flowers. Mm. And so right now, I'm really a flower in a lot of different relationships sure. that I have. A lot of people are taking care of me, and I value that I can be a flower. So I'm sure. like, oh, I'm a flower. It's okay. Be grateful that you have gardeners. And a voice comes over the mic, and it's like my favorite jazz musician Aww, of all time. Her name, fun. oh my goodness. Oh my God, I would have been crying. Yeah, I, I <laughs> was trying. I was like, enjoy the moment, stay in the moment. Yeah. So her name's Esperanza Spalding. Like, oh yeah, I have yeah. She's my, like, when I gave birth to my daughter, like, her album was on the loop. Isn't that why you, her middle name's Esperanza? Yeah. 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 So that's part of the reason why, yep. So it's just. Uh, how cool. I know. I was like, what and it was blessing. like art. It yeah. was like, it was. It wasn't like a, just a concert. It was like she was doing art. Even my friend was like, 
this is so, I've never been to, I was like, that's because she's a musician. Oh, that's so exciting. But, yeah. What so, a great, that's good. Isn't I know. it nice to have great friends like that? I know. love and support you. That's yep. great. So all I, you need to do is just enjoy it and appreciate and it. And just appreciate it. And yeah, then shut nice. up and then keep doing yeah. what you're doing. Because everybody tells us like, well, tells me when it comes to what we're doing. They're like, just keep chucking along. Yeah. Just and that's keep hard. And along. it's hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so that's nice to just like turn your brain off. That's so nice. I love that. That's awesome. So yeah, very, very feeling very like sentimental about it. I love that. Um, but this episode. Oh yeah. This, wowzers. We're bringing you Brittany part two. Yes. Right. Like wowzers. So we jump into her work. Um, so she studies. What is she? She studies the criminalization of Black activists in. Well, they're already criminalized, but like how they're impacted in the prison system, specifically in California. Um, But I really learned a lot more in this episode about the criminalization of black skin and what that's looked like and the criminalization of movements like Black Lives Matter. And that's what makes it relevant to me is that it's no surprise that we see people criminalizing uh, Black Lives Matter and, and movements like that because they have history has shown us that yeah it has it has and the the important part of what Brittany does or what she's doing with us is that she first walked us through the whole uh, like a whole backstory last yes. week oh that's so right if you, if you didn't seen, listen to the yeah. first it's colonized minds yes colonized minds colonized <laughs> We'll start with colonized minds. Like so the one Yeah, so just listen to the previous one and then what was I and then what am I saying? I forget. So listen, then this episode we pick up with what I don't I gotta think. All right, so last episode, like you're right, she talked about the colonized minds and she walked us through like the why, the how on mm-hmm. the outside world. Right. We're dealing with some of the race issues that we see and and um and why it's important yeah. to really kind of look at the society. Oh, that's society. right. And then I remember her saying she started studying gangs, and then gangs led her to yep. um, dive into gangs within prison systems. Yeah, and then I can just say, I'll say. Yeah, it's a whole. No, we're talking. I'm recording. Oh, lines. good. Okay. It is, um, it's a whole It's a whole thing. Process. And then that the biggest takeaway that I had in U.S. school is, and I'll just drop it and say it, it's okay, uh, race it, um, that guards were one of the big reasons gangs exist. Yeah. Because that if you can separate the races, then they're not a threat because there's always more prisoners than guards. Right. And so they would incite race wars to keep them separate. Yeah, it makes me think about how my mom had to deal with having five kids. You only have two hands. So God bless her. <laughs> <laughs> so you younger two, the older two, stick together. Yeah, you know triage. I mean? yeah, pretty much. And, and doing it for the sake and, and unfortunately doing it at the cost of skin. Sure. Right. Dividing by skin. But I think it's really important to acknowledge why it's important for the lay person. Mm. So if I'm a person that lives in a side of town or live somewhere where it's like I don't have a prison where I am and I don't know anybody that went to prison why would this episode be something that you should listen to because for me the biggest takeaway that I learned was I mean I guess I knew this but like there she talks about there's just a big backstory behind how these people end up where they are and they're not just criminals Mm -hmm. they are us you know it's we have this she talks about it she like we look at like black activists or militant black activist groups and we look at them as criminals and she said you know a lot of times a lot of them were criminalized for reading or getting in trouble for having books you know and and then there's reasons that there's reasons that they got into jail much more so than just being a criminal does that make sense right so for me it was like humanizing them and 
and seeing that uh, they're not much different than us. Yeah, I think too, I would agree with you that it's really important to see that that black people weren't going to jail because just because they were this these right. terrible criminals, right. that they could be doing something as simple as having a bookstore. Oh, and being or, black and educated yeah. is dangerous. Ooh. I wrote that quote down. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, it just reminds me, I, I, I think when she was telling me that I had this visual of Angela Davis being in a courtroom, and if you don't know who Angela Davis is, you really should get to know her, but she's this amazingly brilliant um, uh, activist who was put on trial pretty much by the the, the by the FBI mm-hmm. and through some of the things that she taught. But yeah, she, she was... She is not, it was not uncommon for people who weren't able to advocate for themselves the way Angela was able to do, to be in jail for whatever reason. Do you know what I mean? Whatever reason. So it really breaks down to me for anybody anywhere as to why and how black skin was criminalized and then what it means to, uh, what it means for a present day population and, and why we need to treat you know, black, white, or indifferent are criminals, you know. As people. As people when they step back them into society. Yep. Yeah. So that would be the other piece for me is, yeah. is bringing them back into society. Yeah. And I think that's something, ever a question that a lot of people have to sit with. After you've done your time, how much more penance should you have to pay? Right. Aren't you, are you not still a, yeah, an American citizen? Forgiven. Yeah. But... When we're because we have culture conversations specifically about race, this one really kind of hits home of just that um, that pathway to prison for yeah for um, yeah we talk about that too. We talk about folks. children, how we've criminalized black skin, how they may end up there in the first place. Yeah, and 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 narratives that we tell around. We talked about that little in the first one, but narratives that we tell around black people yeah. as well. Yeah, or non-white people, non-white. Yeah, yeah. non-white. Yeah, because people. it's it's you're absolutely we right. We talked about Islamic. Uh, we could go on and on. Yes, we, do, we can just listen and keep an open mind and think about it. You know, you never know who's in your own backyard who has been had their life shaped by the prison system, be it themselves or someone in their family. And, um, yeah, I think that this is one of those things where you got to come out of it is, am I an American mm-hmm. or am I, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, I don't know. Am I? Yeah. Am I? Am I for American people being treated fairly behind bars? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Right. Because we're all Why American at the end of the day. Yeah. Because a lot of those folks are coming back into society. Right. So we hope you enjoy. Yeah. Stay open and stay curious. Yep. Here we go. Drop it in with Brittany E. Or the Curly Professor. <laughs> What is good in the hood? Yeah, that's true. Like, what is yeah, good in your hood? Because we, we forgot to do it with you last time. Yeah. Because we were right, so excited job. to have you. <laughs> <laughs> so what we mean by what's good in the hood, it's just like when we share our good news, like what's going on, what happened this past week in your yeah. life, what's good in the hood. It could be something quirky, but yeah. whatever. What's good okay. in the hood? Mine is probably, so I don't know, most, so, so. I'm excited about this because so my my nine month old has been teething for like her whole life. Like I I'm not even joking. Like, she's been teething. I don't know. Yes, there were there are babies that have been born with teeth. Yeah, so she's been teething, but like there's no teeth. Like 
there's there's just been no teeth the whole time right um and it's just funny because she loves to eat and like my mom's like how is she eating so good with no teeth and I was like I don't know she just she just gums all her food and she's like so anyway the good news is that yesterday I I she likes to drink kefir and so I poured like it's like a yogurt that's like um it's like fermented yogurt yeah. whatever yeah. um so she I was pouring it I pour it in a little shot glass because it's a little cup like her size you know so she's drinking her kefir out of this shot glass and then I hear clink 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 and I was like what's that little ting and then I took it from her and looked at her and I saw a little like ting that had popped through like the night before and I was like yeah oh my god your whole life yeah. <laughs> Finally. So that's my good news. I know it might be lame, but I'm like really oh, excited about this because yeah. she's been eating like it's no like no joke like for nine months. Oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh, that's a big deal. So that is good news in our house. We're all big. We're celebrating her, and uh, <laughs> I'm so excited. Well, this means that new foods are in store. Yes, yeah. close close to having some more types of like diversifying the food. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe not even having to have mush mush. Well, she doesn't eat mush. That's why my mom made, made the joke that she's eating good because, like, she's been eating, like, um, like she eats green beans, she eats chicken, she eats um, bagels, but no tea. <laughs> That's great. She never let it stop her. I wonder you're excited about so, her tea. You're learning something. Remember, remember, remember this, okay, how excited you are that nothing stops her when she's seven, okay? Remember that you appreciate this this trait in her. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's good advice. She's very headstrong. That's how I think she was able to eat so well with no teeth. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Just remember, she's been like this her whole life. That's just it her. makes her great. It gives me a headache, but it makes her. Great. It is true. It shows that she like persevered. Like she didn't let anything. I mean, like the other. Like I was eating some really good food. Like I was eating collard greens. And she was like trying to eat them. I'm like, you don't have any teeth. And my mom's like, don't hold her back. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I was like, all right. And she likes spices. She was eating Chipotle yesterday. I, you know what? <laughs> it's just like, That's amazing. Just that do you. Oh my god. Right. That's a good one. To That's a good, I know. That's, That's really good. cute. Listen, don't have babies anymore. Yeah. So this is a good, a great one's good in the head. Okay. See, then Lisa is not keeping you up at night. You know, my mom would have said, put some whiskey on them gums. Did she really? Is that yes. Oh, granddad. Yes. She did it to my son. Oh, my God. She's like, put a little granddad on there. He'd be all right. <laughs> oh, granddad. Old granddad. Have you ever heard of old granddad? Yeah. This old whiskey. Yeah. Oh Whatever. Old school. Did she do it to you? I'm sure she did. <laughs> she was like, well, that was Blastering it on. <laughs> okay, okay. No, right. Whiskey, too much whiskey can right. get people into trouble. Right. Which could land them behind jail. Right. Which is there your you a transition. Which is your but I'm doing too. You like that? Transition. That was smooth. Which is your area of expertise. Yeah. So my friend already said it was that um that when you're, you know, in school and you're studying and you get to like your level of education, people always expect you to know a whole bunch yeah. of stuff, right? But really they don't realize when you study, you take one tiny piece of things Dive. and you become an expert on this tiny piece. So remind us what your piece yeah. is. 
Well, um, so my little piece of, of incarceration research really focuses on the racial and political dynamics behind bars. So I mainly study essentially, I guess you could call it the prison society, how, how prisoners and, and correctional officers and prison personnel in general build a whole separate world behind bars and how prison policies affect this and just a whole facet of things that happen behind bars. That's really my, my main focus. I do some research on inequality as it relates to who is more likely to end up in prison, but the vast majority of my research is really just what, is, what happens in prison as a result of outside influence. Wow. How did you get to that? That's just, I'm interested. Well, because I started out really interested in gangs. And so that sort of led me to studying, okay, so then what happens to gangs once you get in prison? But then as I started studying gangs in prison, I realized that a lot of the work on gangs actually take this perspective as though gang members are like evil or have some sort of like criminal pathology. I found in my work that it, yes, in the world you do have bad people, <laughs> but usually they're the product of a specific type of environment. And my research is actually showing that beyond that, the correctional personnel have a strong influence on what happens behind bars, even much more, much more so than gangs. And I actually am showing how they actually impact gangs in a very negative way and make prisoner organizations. And I say prisoner organizations because there's lots of types of organizations behind okay. bars, okay, not just gangs. Um, world and culture. Yeah, and I actually have found that it's it's policy that are coming from the Department of Corrections and how corrections employees are enforcing these policies actually has a much greater impact on violence behind bars, on whether or not inmates even need to form gangs. And so I am very much taking a different approach than those who are taking this like criminal pathology approach to people just being naturally bad. Versus yeah. I'm saying, no, it's actually more about the way that you treat people in prison. Wow. It levels of violence and conflict. So you just said why people need to to uh, form gangs. I thought that was just interesting. So what what in your work has have you found has made people need to even form a gang behind bars? So what I have found is, is my work really does support the basic notion that prison people form gangs in prison for survival, right? And it's, uh, it's for their physical protection because when you're in an environment like prison, you do have um, a higher likelihood of violence because you are, you're, in, you're, in, you're in an enclosed space um, with a lot of people who may be predisposed to more violent reactions to conflict, right? So people end up needing to form organizations. And the reason I say organizations because you have different types. So you have some that are like, you know, small little cliques that people form. You have full-fledged organizations like prison gangs, and you also have social movement groups that form in prison. But the difference between the, the basic protection narrative, which is what a lot of people say, it's like common sense, right? You're in prison, you need to form groups for protection. My research actually shows that people aren't just protecting themselves from other prisoners, they're actually protecting themselves from guards and correctional personnel in general. So that's that's mainly my main, like, if you would call it contribution <laughs> to the research in this area, is to show how people need to protect themselves from uh, the prison itself and how the prison itself 
foments conflict between prisoners, which increases their likelihood of forming gangs because they're causing prisoners to fight. Wow. And what does this look like on a, a racial right, context? Like, what does it look like? Like, what are the rates of violence against people of color? Well, so the thing is, is like, is when you come into prison, you are bringing with you all of your pre-existing social roles. And what I mean by that is, so if I were to go into prison, I'd be, you know, and I, I would still be an African-American woman who's a mother, right? So I bring that with me to prison. The same thing for anybody else who goes, they, they go in, they're still, they still identify with a particular racial or ethnic group, a religion, um, a region. If they were a part of a, a gang or a group before, they identify with it. So that all has a huge impact as well on the fact that when people are looking for protection, they're going to try to bond with people who look and, and sound and sort of are like them. So if you're going to look for protection, you feel like for me, I might be like, all right, I need to look for people who are from like the Chicago area or people who are of the same racial group as me. And that's sort of what happens behind bars when people are looking for protection. They just naturally gravitate toward who they may gravitate toward on the outside. That makes sense. That's why they, prisoners form these subsets based on race. It is a bit more complicated, but I don't want to go on and on about that. But it's a bit more complicated because correctional officers have a way of causing racial division to ensure that prisoners stay divided on race. Oh, and I, I have very specific examples of that that I'm I say what show in my book. Like, yeah. Because what I feel like it sounds like in my head, first off, I was imagining like a dog establishing their pack, like dogs. It's not just because oh, my husband just watched a movie Alpha. Have you heard of it? No. There's a movie Alpha, I guess, that talks about the dog's relationship and how we formed this bond with them because we needed each other, right? It was really a survival thing in needing each other. But you do have people who take dogs, right? And they bring out the worst in them, mm-hmm. right? You have owners they get in an environment and they bring out the worst of them and then they're labeled a certain way. And so it made me think about are some prison guards like those? bad dog owners that are like taking this this dog that is not inherently like pit bulls aren't like inherently violent it's they get put in environments where they you bring out the worst in it in in the sort of dog based off of the owner and i hate to compare people to dogs but it is a level of domestication it is behind bars yeah it's a socialization process i guess the the term for it technically is is prisonization which literally is like the process of becoming institutionalized mentally physically and what ends up happening is you you go in you know you're no longer an individual you're a part of a group of inmates um it's sort of the process of becoming an inmate you know you don't you lose all privileges you lose your individuality you don't even have a name anymore you have a number a number um so that's the pro- that is the uh, regular process of becoming an inmate but what i am showing is that guards and prison systems in general go above and beyond this. And it's usually on the basis of race or other identifiers. So my my main expertise is in California. I know that historically in California, um, correctional officers in particular would purposefully lie or, or exaggerate the threats between groups. So I can give a specific example. They would go to the white prisoners and say, well, we saw the black prisoners over there making shanks. Like, you guys should be prepared. And this may or may not be true. A lot of times it, it may not have been true. But the reason they did that is because they wanted to keep prisoners self 
divided along race. And it's because it's a strategic move. Because if we're talking about, you know, it's a society just like any other. So you have all of these political moves that groups make and correctional officers are their own group. So it's in their best interest for prisoners to be divided along race because they won't be able to organize themselves against correctional officers because there's way more prisoners than there are correctional officers. And so that is a tactic that I have seen historically in California that gets used over and over and over again. And so people wonder, like, why are prisons, especially in California, California is, is home to at least six of the major U.S. prison gangs. They start were started in California. And my research is showing that the reason for that is because the level of racial conflict that correctional officers and, and different types of correctional personnel, even up to wardens, purposefully cause to cause prisoners to remain divided, to, to need to form these full-scale organizations to protect themselves from other prisoners, but also from correctional officers. And, and that's more speaking to uh, Black and Latino prisoners, actually, protecting themselves from correctional officers. On the flip side, I actually have evidence that correctional officers partnered with white prisoners a lot of times to attack other groups of prisoners, which is a whole other... So it's a whole story of corruption, essentially. Um, we think of prison as this very... I know, we think of it as like a very... It's very divided on the grounds of inmate officer, but it's not It's not true. You, you see that race tends to trump those divisions when it comes to needing to survive behind bars. Wow. So in a sense, I feel like... If we're looking at behind bars of who is, in a sense, kind of protected, yeah. it's the group of people that look more like what the guards look like, yeah. whatever that is. In, for a particular period of time, that, it, that definitely held true for sure. And I would say leading up to the 80s, that was 100% true. In the 80s you, in California, and I'm talking about California, in, in the 80s in California is when you start to see different white supremacist groups actually do begin getting targeted heavily by the Department of Corrections and the FBI. And the reason for that, it's not because of what they've been doing the past two decades. The past two decades, you know, starting in the 60s, they were, I mean, annihilating black prisoners like left and right because they felt very threatened by the black power movement, which was making its way into the prison system. And which is what we talked about a little bit in part one, right? And so white prisoners felt very threatened by this. That also, uh, so did correctional officers, which is what sort of propelled them to make these alliances with white prisoners because they're like, you know, we're all white, essentially, which is something I'm theorizing about currently in my book is trying to understand, like, why is it white above everything, you know, in this time period? It's like, you're, he's a prisoner, you're an officer, but why does that not matter? And so you see, though, in the 80s, the white, white supremacists actually get too big for their britches, and they start attacking correctional officers, and that's when they start getting systematically locked up in solitary. But it's it's not until that point, right? It's not until they directly challenge their power source, then they're like, oh, nope, you guys are doing too much, like you're gone. <laughs> yeah, you get swept away. And I think that's very telling for how prisons maintain a level of white supremacy behind bars, because it's not until they challenge the prison directly that they get removed and targeted the same way that Black prisoners were targeted for decades. Let's talk about how they even got there. When you look at California and you look at, I think in California, the when they were having the, was it the riots in California? And what was it? I can't, 
I'm thinking about the Black Panther Party in California specifically about how those groups of maybe not completely violent people getting put, being targeted and put in a system. Extremists. Yeah. Right. So uh, just because you, you were talking about how um, um, the Black Power movement, how did that, how did that become an, I guess, for the listeners, and how did that become an incriminating process? And what did that look like for, even, in, even with the Nation of Islam, you did some work on that, with those sort of people being put behind bars. So you mean the process of them being criminalized? Right, of, of those sort of things being criminalized, even get to a point where this is something that we're re- researching mm-hmm. behind bars. Well, I think it first starts out where they are, well, Black protest in general is identified as a, as a problem and as a threat to the current racial order. I mean, or, or the, the, the racial order as it stands in America, that's been going on for since slavery, right? Because, you know, you know any slaves, any sign of slave protest is annihilated. Any sign of protest, even going all the way back to Marcus Garvey in the in the early 1900s when he tried to unite Pan-African organizations, he's immediately targeted by the FBI. And and this resurfaces again with the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King is being is being targeted. If you if you look into the FBI documents that are publicly available, um, all of these people are being targeted because black protest is it, it's 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 a direct affront to white supremacy and so what happens in the 60s is that you see this new wave of black protest that's saying you know we you know what we might need to meet violence with violence right because the only way that white supremacy has been maintained historically in the u.s is through violence and so these groups are saying that we have to meet it head-on with violence because reform is not going to do anything we've been trying to reform for a century and we we learned that you know we actually need to have a revolution and so that is what becomes labeled as terrorism by the u.s justice department and that is what they use to um systematically target them for setups outright murder as you like the famous example is uh, fred hampton shooting. and and that's what and that's what brings a large uh influx of black um militant, you can call them, I would say militant, because in my research, a lot of them self-describe as militants. And so that's what brings a lot of Black militants into the prison system in the 60s. Um, And also a lot of people who are going into the prison system are joining these groups too, behind bars. There are a lot of people who weren't involved prior to that. So it becomes sort of a hotbed for Black radical protest at the time. Because people are becoming educated too. The people who weren't involved in these movements before, they're being educated by people who are affiliated with these movements who are, who are like, you know, look around, look at this prison cell, look at this institution, look at how they're partnering with white supremacist prisoners. Doesn't this look just like slavery to you? Like these, these are, these correctional officers are our overseers, essentially. The warden is our master. That's like the phrasing, right? It's, it's sort of the, or you could call it the framing in social movement speak. It's the, the way that people use a, a specific frame to make it plain for you so that you understand what's happening. And, and that's well, that was very threatening to correctional systems at the time. Um, and I think that also helps explain their willingness to partner with white supremacist prisoners who eventually go on to form the Aryan Brotherhood in the mid-60s um, is because they this black threat is just so terrifying that it's like we can't allow this to stand. 
behind where bars. Where is it today? You know, because you talked about the 60s and then how did it progress and where does it stand now? Um, the black uh, militant movement right now? Yeah. I mean, I would argue that it, much of it was decimated in the 70s. Okay. Mid-70s, late, late 70s. Um, because what ends up happening, at least in California, is that once uh, George Jackson is killed in 1971, are you familiar with like the, um, I you, people call it the San Quentin incident, some people call it the San Quentin uprising or rebellion. Uprising, yeah. No, I've never heard of that. It's basically in, uh, in, in 1971, uh, George Jackson, um, along with others, sort of, uh, they plan and I'm, I'm getting this not from like what I've read, but from my interviews that they planned this escape attempt because they received word that George Jackson was going to be set up and killed by the prison administration, which was a real threat for them at the time because it had happened many times. Uh, it happened the year prior in Soledad, if you're familiar with the Soledad incident, where, um, which is where you get the term Soledad Brothers. So it was a real threat for them, um, and they believed it, and they were like, okay, we need to get him out, because at this time, he was a, a prominent leader in their movement. Um, and, and essentially, he, he ends up getting set up, long story short, and is shot in San Quentin um, in August, yes, in August of 71. And this causes uh, sort of an outcry amongst black prisoners in California and across the country. Um, and specifically in California, a lot of people end up saying that they're with George or with the movement, but they may not have actually been. It's because he was a, a martyr. So it's like their movement goes from a very small, close-knit group to thousands. Wow. And then that makes it much easier for the uh, Justice Department to infiltrate them, um, especially if you're looking at like the publicly available FBI documents to infiltrate them with with undercover, undercover agents. And so it's really in the 70s, after this happens, they are really able to, to uh, take them down, take down the black militant movement because um, they lock up all of their leaders um, in solitary. They're able to infiltrate it because the leaders aren't able to control who's joining because there's so many people joining in, um, in the aftermath of this killing and they're in solitary. So there's a lot of reasons why, but it's really in the 70s that it, uh, the, the original political foundation dies and it sort of morphs into something else that we see today. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask next. What do we see today? What's going on? Well, the, so the movement that I'm studying right now is it eventually becomes uh, one of the biggest prison gangs in the country. Really? <laughs> And my argument for this is, my argument is that it's because once the, the Department of Corrections specifically targets the political foundation in the 70s, um, I, I argue that they do that by design because black protest is, is much more threatening to the institution and their institutional sovereignty than um, whether or not someone's selling drugs behind bars. If somebody is... is uh, sort of building a drug trafficking ring in prison, right? That's not as threatening as if somebody's like, I'm about to take out all of you correctional officers and like take out this institution. So what they end up doing is incentivizing this type of criminality because anybody who um, is identified as being involved with the original uh, movement gets locked up. 
people who are engaging in other types of activity, like I said, with, you know, in the contraband or, or whatever, they end up sort of escaping the um, administration's radar in various institutions. So it's a, a way to incentivize criminality, but uh, police political protest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I believe that it was a deliberate strategy. Um, and so that's just one answer as to, as yeah. to why they are able to do that. And, and there's a whole host of other things because when you have the, when the eighties happen, the drugs that are flowing into society at that time are flowing into prison at the same rate. Oh, oh wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, so it's sort of a perfect storm as to why the, um, movement is, is co-opted and sort of morphs at this time in the late seventies, early eighties. It's right at the onset yeah. of mass incarceration. Yeah. You have yeah. a flux of prisoners. You have, um, as I said, the original leadership is gone. Um, so you have a new leadership with a new agenda and, and, and in their defense, you could also argue that they were trying to save the organization because if they, if they, um, went with the old guard, they would have ended up in solitary. Yeah. In solitary or dead. Where people in solitary more, I think you've studied that as well, right? Like what's the rates on that? Yes. Um, uh, to this day, um, blacks and Latinos are, um, much more represented in solitary confinement than their proportion in the prison population. Wow. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I was going to say, what is that? Backtrack, because yeah. that sounds cool, because we already have this idea that, not we, but a lot of people already have the idea that black people and non-white people go to prison more than anybody else because they're just inherently bad. So what you're saying is, is of the proportion of them that are in prison, it is... My mind is blown away. Yeah. So of the non-white people that are in prison, they are they're still more likely to be in solitary confinement than white people. Yes. Still, that disparity is still there, even though it's okay. Got it. Go ahead. Much more likely to be deemed a security threat that needs to be put in solitary, and and also I'm showing that within that subset that's in solitary, people who are validated as belonging to political movements are even more likely to be in solitary. And I'm I'm doing a, a study right. Well, I'm I'm, not, I'm writing an article right now with a friend of mine, and he basically we're using my archival data to show the historical narrative of where this comes from. Um, and then we're using his contemporary uh, statistical analysis to show that it's not just California, that it's widespread and in, in its current still. So his analysis shows that, for instance, um, across correctional systems, and that's including jails, the Nation of Islam, for instance, is um, almost 14 times, sorry, I don't want to misquote the statistics. So basically, it's that correctional systems who have the Nation of Islam in their prisons or jails are 14 times more likely to use solitary confinement as a disciplinary measure, which shows that there's a strong correlation between having black militants in your institution and whether or not you think solitary confinement is useful. And then we can talk about the effect of solitary confinement too because I feel like it obviously is disproportionately affecting a population. I mean it has a whole, like from the psychology literature, it has a whole host of psychological issues that affect re-entry, 
I mean, that's something that yes, you, I mean, you're significantly more likely to go back to prison if you spend any time in cell phone. Yeah, and if you're targeting a certain group of people, it's feeding into a narrative. And it, it, what's 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 not it's not wild to me. But what I think of is when I because coming being from Chicago, right? I know the the, the 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 brothers in the nation are pretty freaking smart. Like they are well versed on history. They are they're just even there's so much. Even if I'm not Muslim, there's so much that I learned from them just about our history alone. So your take, in a sense, which is us. I'm just saying a smart black person, right? These, these, these being smart and being Negro is almost one of the worst weapons that you can have behind bars. If I hear you correctly, right? And I believe the only way to stop a, again, this is me hypothesizing, the only way to stop that knowledge from spreading is to cherry pick the, the, the leaders, as you said before, and put them in a place where they can't, share that wealth of information in a sense so is it have you found anything that supports that that it is more so what the prisoners know and their their intelligence that find that puts them in solitary confinement their intelligence coupled with obviously the fact that they're that they're black um other than anything else rather than their level of violence oh yeah it's that it, that's 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 basically my book in a nutshell is showing that it's a uh, direct it is directly related to their um knowledge and education education level and many of them are self-taught some not some certain university thought self-taught whatever they're some of the smartest people in the prison for instance uh george jackson as we were talking about earlier after he was killed inside of his cell the guards retrieved 99 books that were in his cell they were um it ranged from history to social political theories such as Marx, Durkheim. Um, and, and many of these books, because they were in his cell, were uh, quickly banned. And so yeah. if you were caught with those books, you would be put in solitary. And in your file, it, they would flag you as a militant. And just for having for, Yes. And it still happens to this to this day across across many prisons. Um, there are a number of books that you are not uh, allowed to have. Some of like, for instance, have you heard of it's a great book by um, Heather Ann Thompson called Blood in the Water? Yeah, I have heard of it. Um, so she, she, she won the Pulitzer Prize um, in history. And, and I know for a fact that in, in some prisons, her book is, is on the banned list because she she is, is showing sort of the uh, very bloody roots, if you will, that led to the Attica uprising in New York. Um, but the Attica uprising for people that don't know it. I don't know. Attica's huge. Yeah. So the Attica uprising, um, it, it happens. It's sort of what sparks it or what's considered like the igniting event is when George Jackson was killed in California in uh, 71. Um, August 21st, but the Attica uprising ends up happening September 9th that same year, and it's basically when a group of prisoners overtook the prison to protest their conditions. Oh, um, yes, I remember you did an interview. Yeah, so you could argue I, it, it's, it wasn't caused by the um, San Quentin event with Jackson, but that definitely was the igniting event. It was caused by, similar to in California, long-standing racial oppression and violence behind bars is what led to them protesting. Um, and so her book is showing basically the um, 
the the murder of, of many of those prisoners and and hostages when um, the governor sends in uh, the police to stop the riot and doesn't want to meet any of their demands. Um, and she's sort of showing uh, the really groundbreaking thing in her book is showing the cover up of how they purposefully killed all of these people. And so, so yeah, so her book is on the ban list for that reason, because it's, it's a seen as a book that could incite future protests yeah. or just educate people on it. What you're saying almost to me, like mirrors society of like how, almost like how I raise my son is like, don't give don't give them any reason because like you said, it was like, all, we, all they needed was a reason to kill all these. So like all they needed was one. Look, it doesn't take much. And it, unfortunately, like you said, it's, it's a society of its own behind bars. And it, it's not much different ideology, ideology from than, than, than yeah. the way that we are living. Yeah. Only, <laughs> only they're living by a different set of rules. And is this all rooted in white supremacy? I mean, is that kind of the bottom line? Yeah, it's it, it's rooted in in a whole because 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 white supremacy it's more than an ideology. Mm-hmm. If you see if you look at how it functions yeah. behind bars, it's supported by a, a I would say a psycho a social psychological enjoyment of being in control. Um, and, and people, when that control is threatened, you know, what do we do? People will do whatever it takes. Right. And that's why you see... Clearly you, see today. <laughs> yeah, you, and that's why in prison you see this alliance between correctional officers and white prisoners because it's like, you would think, well, they're prisoners. What? what? It's like, no, it's, it's they will do whatever it takes to maintain um, control. Yeah. And I feel like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, too, like if you're targeting these people, you start to dehumanize them and then you see them as people to target. You know what I mean? You kind of almost like uh, make it okay. You know, in their minds, they think they're exactly. already criminal. This is fine. And the truth is, is that the prison guards are all, are not in prison. So they come out. <laughs> they are out in society moving and yeah, shaking. And they are, they are shaping the paradigms of very many people. And, and of a, yes. Just between, like what you're saying, between the prison guards and we talk about policing, it is hard to understand why we still have European-American people that don't understand why movements like Black Lives Matter matters are so, it's so important. Yeah, it's hard to why it's met, why it's yeah. met with such resistance because this black skin has been criminalized, right? And once it's been, Always. yeah, since the beginning of, since as long as we can learn and research, and actually that's not true because at one point you did have people coming to Africa to read, to learn, to teach, to do all, you know, to, for all these different things. But in the United States of America, our skin is also a crime. Yeah. And so it is very difficult. I guess it's very difficult for, for me when I meet people, European Americans that aren't able to, to get that, mm-hmm. and to see why they're so, not look at us as we're just inherently bad people and say, you guys are just behind bars because you're not smart. Well, you were deprived of education for so many years because you're, you're, you're criminals. Well, you know, we're, we're being targeted, like aren't able to see these things as facts rather than their own Yeah, they're taking theories. the lazy way out. It's just seeing stereotypes. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're seeing them it's as like facts. A, I, the wrong word, but like self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm just straight, like they see a stereotype and say, of course it's that of way. Of course. Yeah. Of course you look at the, the rates of, you know, people use, I've heard them say that, the rates of incarcerated black people or, you know, people mm-hmm. of color to whites 
and then they don't dig into history, so then they just yeah. accept what they hear. Yeah, so yeah, and even the statistics have a story, right? Yeah, There's a reason why those statistics yeah. are the way they are. People of color are more inherently bad or, you know, do more than, than white people. It's just, it's if you look at history, they've been targeted, right? Isn't that, is that yeah, true? You said exactly. More, I think your work said they were five times more likely to be in prison. In 1960, um, yeah, African Americans, even back then, were five times more likely than whites to be in prison. What is that now? Now, the rate, I don't want to misquote it because it just sure. changed. Sure. <laughs> it just changed recently. Yeah. That's, I wanted to know just to see if we've gotten better or worse or stayed the same. Okay. I'm going to look up the most recent. Yeah. And I will even say to add to this whole getting, the getting of Black folks behind bars is the reason is another layer to look at is the school, the school to prison pipeline, what that looks like, why that looks that way, and why our boys are so boys and girls are so young getting um, indoctrinated into the, what did you, sorry, what did you call it? You used the word for it, uh, prisonality or whatever you said. Yeah. I don't know. Prison, prisonization is what Prisonization, you, right. Why they're socialized into uh, the prison culture. Yeah, and I think wow. in some ways Before there's- they're a, even going in? Well, if I look at a school, right? If I look at, and, and I'll use my own I don't know if I should, <laughs> but I look at the um, what puts a child in the school to prison pipeline. It is almost, it, it, not almost, I think it's, it is that. It's like conditioning them to believe that they are inherently bad people. Yeah. Because this is of, what they're destined for. And that is, yeah. Because even my, you look at my son who's a pretty smart kid, I don't, I don't hate to play his business out there, but he's actually, he stood up and talked about this at an event, is that he's like, I feel like I am always being watched and that anything I do is more wrong than any other, other child. The consequences are worse. It's he, very but, inquisitive to say that. Yeah. Most of the time people just internalize it and they don't realize it that it's someone else doing that to them. They're like, yes. oh, I just must be that's bad. Hideous. Exactly. Why would you, especially as a young child, why? You don't know to be introspective. You don't even know what that means to figure out that these messages are being put on you. They're put on you. And the thing about it, and I, I love him. He is a very smart boy. And to hear this, it's like, well, he's smart as hell. Why would they do that to him? It's because, look at him. Like, it's, the fact that he's black is not going to change his whole life. And I have to, I have to remember that, that I, he can be as smart as I want him to be. He can be as well spoken as whatever as, as he wants to be, but he's still a black boy. And there are people that don't know that they have these biases, don't know that they are, you know, that they're just doing it because it's just a part of their, their fabric. I'm saying European Americans, it's a part of their fabric. We look at school resource officers. Okay. That's like our prison guards. Right. Right. You know what I mean? And it is. he said, I've watched them. I've watched other kids do things in the lunchroom and nothing gets said to them. But the moment I speak something loudly or say, hey, I'm immediately reprimanded. Mm-hmm. So that we look at our, I'm looking at our schools and saying, is, are we not, are we doing the same thing? Preparing them for the, you know, we just got our suspension rates dropped down here in, in Virginia. So um, I think you can only suspend based off age level so many days, but I know it's max is like 45 days of school because I, 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 I just feel like, again, it is to one, keep our kids dumb, right? You keep them out of school, you keep mm-hmm. them smart, right? And then two, to, um, to, 
prepared them for the life that white supremacy wants them to have or says that they're supposed to have. Exactly. System that's doing that like so insidiously, like no one's saying it, but they're doing it. Or do you think it's something that's happening and they're not even aware of it because society tells us that you know black or black people are inherently bad or or you know are doing these things to be put in prison? You know, I, I just wonder how insidious is it? You know, is it both? Are there people that are truly targeting you know black children are doing that or is it just because there's implicit bias like severe bias it's a mix because i think that it is implicit like some people they don't realize that they're targeting black children i'm not trying to think that they don't notice it think it's just yeah i think it's just it's so ingrained with all of us and that's what an effect white supremacy has done to everyone you know it's not our all right. Well, I there are people though who do have a very um, nefarious agenda, and yeah. I and I think that. But I think that what's scary about those people is that they those people have the same justifications as the ones who have implicit bias. Yeah. So the, the ignorant ones and the ones that are like you know, you could call them evil-minded. You could argue that they have the same justifications, right? Because the people who have the implicit bias are like, no, he's just bad. And yeah, the people who have, are evil-minded are like, no, they're bad. <laughs> so it's like, it's the same, they have the same root issue, in my opinion. And they're not so that's what, willing to examine if they're challenged with them, but they're not even challenged with the fact that they may have bias, which is the problem. Exactly. And the, and the issue is that you have to try to, you, like we were talking about before, you do have to try to change people's mindset. But I feel like on the flip side, this is where the protest comes in, is that you have to empower Black parents to stand up for their rights and their children's rights. Because I feel like it has to be both. And that's really what you, you learn when you look at the history of Black protests is that it's, it's teaching you, like, yes, we can try to change, quote, you know, white people. Or, but we also have to be willing to stand up for ourselves because it's, yeah, it's, a, it's both. It has to come from the top down and the bottom up for there to actually be sustained change. I looked at the, some rates, by the way, to make sure that I had the exact rate. Yeah. So now it's African-Americans are still incarcerated now at about five times the rate of life. So it hasn't changed. We ain't getting no better. No. I had a feel in my mind, I was thinking it was similar. Like I was, I was going to say, I think it's six times, but it's five. So it's, yeah, it's exactly the same. I don't want to give anybody any excuses. No. Um, because I know, I know the work that I want to do in my corner of the world. But I also know that when I try to get black parents to step up, when it's like, we got to do this, there is that mentality that things are the way they are. They're going to be this way. There's nothing that we can do about it, which I think is supported by the oppression of, 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 of black intelligence and black political movements. It's like, if we try to do anything, it, it's, it's not going to end well. Either my kids are going to pay a consequence for it. I'm going to, I want to be around. I got to work what is it, work, pay taxes, and die, like, be black and die, yeah, like, exactly. like, because there has been a, you know, your death, it was almost, I mean, your life was almost a consequence for standing, stepping up and speaking out, and not everybody's willing to do that, which is why the leaders were so important. Exactly, because as you see, and the, and the issue too, and that's why the, the level of educating people about the social determinants of their inequality basically educating them like this is do not believe what you've been told that the reason you're here in this predicament is is all because of your own doing that's what we are told in in american society we are a society that privileges the american dream so we tell people like you know you're poor or you're you're a criminal or all these things because what 
you've done, not what society has done to you or what it hasn't done at all in your benefit. Um, and, and I think that you, that's, that's why um, these black leaders are so dangerous because they're educating people on like, no, like this is how racism and white supremacy functions in American society to purposely keep you down. But they don't want us to tell you that because, or explain it to you, um, because then that gives you the empowerment to stand up against it versus you just saying, you know, oh, well, no, I'm in this predicament because I'm dumb and I'm all these like negative things that I've been told. And I think also we're at a disadvantage, if you're going back to the parenting point, we're at a disadvantage in terms of standing up against when our children are mistreated or targeted because uh, a lot of research suggests that um, parents who are more likely to protest just in general, regardless of race, it's very classist, right? So it's parents who have more income, have a higher level of education, are way more likely to be like, you can treat my child like this <laughs> versus someone. And, and because African-Americans are because of our the, the huge disparities in our class level compared to whites, we're, and, then, and then we add race to it, we're even less likely to, to sort of feel like we have the ability to say anything to a principal that might not be just a, an okay, you know, and, and, and this goes to all facts of life, not even just in school, it can, even with the doctor, the doctor can tell you this and that about your kid, I remember they, uh, even my daughter's appointment, the doctor was like talking to me about something that he thought and he kind of was talking to me in a way where, that I didn't appreciate and I said, well, you know what, you can just explain it to me scientifically because I um, am about to have my PhD, so I understand exactly what you're talking about in terms of um, what is likely to cause these types of illnesses. And then he was like, oh, I didn't realize. I said, yeah, you didn't realize. You had to qualify yourself. Like, you had to qualify yeah. yourself walking in the room. And I, we, I know you know this from us being on the campaign trail yes. and how many parents were like, I don't want to go, one, I don't want to sound dumb. Right. And two, yeah, when the when the exactly when the when the yeah when they're talking to me, yeah. it's like I don't know how to come she back didn't because feel empowered to go in and yeah. say because they made her feel stupid. She I felt had stupid. a woman tell me that on yeah. the yeah. campaign trail. Like, I think her son was having some behavioral issues, but she didn't want to go into the system <laughs> because they would talk down to her and make her make her question her. It's almost like gaslighting. It's like almost like you know because it's making you question. The truth, when she knows the truth, and they're making her question, you know yeah. what I mean? Her, yeah. her put them on the medicine or whatever. It is. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Which this brings it home for me is why you're, you're, what you do is so, so important. important. Yeah, because without statistics, and unfortunately, we do, we don't believe narratives. We're a very numbers driven society, which I understand. But if someone's not putting it out there, not putting research out there, we can't, it's hard to make those connections. And unfortunately, as a white person, you don't, it's hard to understand it if you don't live it. Um, and that's not an excuse, but once we see your work and hear it, it's kind of hard. I always say this, once you know, you know. <laughs> you can't not. I always tell my friends that. Once you listen to my podcast, you're some level awoke. <laughs> it's, it's true. Unless they are able to compartmentalize and then they're having an issue with cognitive dissonance, right? Because they know what's real, but then in there, they still want to hold on to like, you know, white is right. <laughs> and that, that in and of itself is the white supremacy complex yeah and white people exactly. do that yeah and that's mm-hmm. for the people that even it's very it's even hard to for white people to swallow implicit bias you know what i mean I, and i do <laughs> say, I, 
I know. And I share it openly. You know, I've shared that I have biases. And I'm not ashamed. It, it, I always tell Jackie, there's no point in apologizing for what, but I, I've been indoctrinated in a system that made people of color seem less than, it just all the horrible things, you know. And it's taken a lot of work to unlearn those things yes. and work on them. And work on them, yeah. So if you were, I, I loved this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Only because like, I'm, I feel like as a black person, it like reignites my, you know, my sense of purpose in doing and standing up and like saying something and educating myself because I think that's probably the hardest thing to do. Feeling so connected to, I'll just tell people the diaspora is real. Like we all do really feel connected to each other in some way, shape, or form. And so sometimes researching and listening can be very painful. Like yeah. actually very painful and can be tough. It snatches sometimes hope from you. Like you're just like, God, where does it end? But you know, when I hear people like you speak and then the work that you're doing and making it plain for people like me or people like us that just don't really get that, especially when it comes to prison, that that, that is a whole other world and that those people are humans too. And that there's something that they are going through as well. That because we look at it, your neighbors, and I have two of my neighbors are felons, you know, like that recent, they're old men and they've gotten their rights to vote back. But it's like, they've been a part of this system and they say and do things that I have to understand the time in which they were in these systems and that they are, they are, they are proof that they can, you can move forward, but they are, they are few. Yeah. They are few and, and they've been given a chance and I'm blessed that I'm their neighbors and that we have the people around them rather than anyone else, you know, that way keep. So thank you for what you do. Yeah, like, seriously. For making oh, thank you all for of course. Using, just for using this platform. I think you should, I think some I think that I would encourage you to have a conversation with your neighbors and 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 maybe even like a life history conversation because I'd be curious to hear about their childhood through their experiences that led them to having first having contact with the criminal justice system because that's really eye-opening because you start to see a lot of parallels for people who have been incarcerated. There's all these similarities in their early life histories before they even made it to prison. That's a good idea. That's a good... Because yeah, that was my next question is like, so once white people are exposed to this information, what would you suggest we do or what is a helpful way to be an ally? I don't know if you like that word, that's controversial, but you know, how can we do better? You know, to partner? I think that it, it starts with interpersonal um, relationships and communication yeah. because um, the thing is, is like when, when people are, when people hear about racial injustice or inequality, a lot of times they just turn it off, right? They, they're yeah. like, I'm not listening to any of that race talking. Yeah. So it's really about, in my opinion, what makes the most change is when you are able to uh, really take the time to have a full-on conversation or dialogue with someone and to try to understand where they're coming from, but then present your viewpoint in a way that they can understand. Because yeah. I think when you see a lot of the big changes and progress that we've had, they've come from you know legal battles right um, in the courts that's that is true but legal, legal victories tend to occur because there's been widespread sweeping cultural change about how we think about issues mm -hmm. um, and the only way that you end up having cultural change is through 
these interpersonal connections at the ground level um, that happen over time and build to then you see a society that's more accepting, more inclusive over time. So I would say that it just starts with what can you do with your neighbors in your own hood, in your own neighborhood? Yeah, what, what can you do? And the name comes from, yeah. Exactly, because you look at our society 50 years ago, we've come a long way in terms of cultural change sure. and in terms of how we think about race. We have a far way to go, but we wouldn't have had a lot of these legal successes if there weren't some level of, of change. Sure. And that happens from the ground up. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, it's sometimes I would say for white people, it takes a relationship, like you said, because you can hear statistics all day long and you can hear stories, but it's that personal friendship because, you know, whatever affects her affects me because ultimately ultimately we're friends yeah. you know what I mean and so it's like oh my god how can I not care you know so because I hear that all the time from my white friends it's just it's hard to connect you know yeah. so that, that's a great piece of advice I feel like that's your so what now what it you really remember is. we did that yeah. so what now what yeah so what yeah it really is it's just real now what get to know some people right <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's I saw, why your environment yeah. <laughs> Treat your treat your environment like you treat your portfolio. I too, and this is because I've heard feedback on this. A lot of my white friends are like, I live in white spaces. Like, I don't know how, like, I can't just go find a black friend, you know, like, yeah. or any person of color, you know, and it's hard to just genuinely have those relationships happen. But to me, when we say diversify, it could be watching more shows with leading, you know, uh, people of color, you know, and the actors or reading diversity diversifying the books that we read. I was just at a conference this weekend. They were like, mm -hmm. how many of you in your book lineup go to your Kindle are all the authors white? And this was to white people. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, me too. And I do this work. You know, so it's just like diversify could be on your Twitter or on your Instagram. Like who are you following? You know, are they all white people? Are they activists? Uh, because that can just be eye-opening in itself. I know I found that to be helpful. Yeah. Do you have anything, um, yeah. do you have any recommended watching, reading for someone who's like maybe... I want to know. It doesn't matter what you look like, but it's like, you know, I'd like to know more about this or I'd like to get, give myself a better understanding these sorts of things mm -hmm. or, or have a paradigm shift that all people that go behind bars aren't just these evil, you know. Yeah, like any stories from... Or any, anything that you would or, read or that you yeah. would watch because I know 13th is out there, which is on Netflix. Yeah. Um, PBS did a special on the Black Panther movement, which was really amazing and talked about mm -hmm. those sorts of things. But what you have anything that's that you would recommend yeah i think in terms of following uh sort of an everyday excuse me um everyday dialogues about um what we've been talking about people should look into the root excuse me i'm gonna drink water um the root is a really great resource and uh sort of an amalgam of writings from authors from academia authors from uh, general media but it's great also the black detour the magazine that I follow. And in terms of specifically criminal justice and just sort of staying woke on these on justice issues, definitely the appeal or the Marshall Project recommend. They do a great job of uh, making all of these uh, statistics that we've been talking about, just making it plain. Awesome. And they have a lot of narratives too from uh, people who are formerly incarcerated or incarcerated, which is great uh, at the Marshall Project. And Just Mercy, we always quote Oh yeah, Just Mercy. That was, yeah, yeah, yeah. All his work. He's a lawyer in the South, and I think he actually runs the Southern Poverty Law Center. But anyway, they study all this stuff, and he worked with prison. He works with prisoners on death row. Yeah, EJI. The yeah. EJI. Is oh, the, yeah. They don't do much on social media. I'll say that. Like, yeah. there's not much you can get from them. But their calendar is phenomenal. If you, you ever get. That. 
BJI calendar and each day they tell you something like this month is all about Chinese American plight. So wow. it talks about every day. Yeah, I didn't either until I read the calendar and it says all the stuff on there. Sure. Like, oh, I learned this about, you know, but, um, cool. Those are some great, man. So she did her show at Noah. What's ours? Well, you go ahead. You okay. want to go? I don't know. So I'll go. I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. Um, when I look at diversification of something, it's not just, I mean, ideally, right. You want to have friends that are, don't look like you. And it doesn't have to be color. It can be religion, you know, um, sexual identity, whatever, but, um, diversify everything you take in. Cause I think doing this work for me has been about like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I really do just follow, <laughs> you know, white people. And it's not even on purpose. It's just kind of, I wasn't even aware of it. So going through your Twitter feed, going through your Instagram feed, going through your Kindle, going through your podcast, you know, who do you listen to? Stuff like that. So just the important of hearing other voices, mm -hmm. you know, not just people, but it's, it's diversity is good in general because you don't know until you know. You know? That's true. Yeah. So that would be my, and so what is your work is very important because it, you know, because it connects the dots. I mean, there's many reasons, but for me on a practical level as a white person, it's like, your accessible, your work is so important because it teaches me. I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know the fact. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't have access to a community that doesn't look like you. So your work can kind of bridge that gap. I agree. I would say, so what? The, the, the past can be hurtful, right? Um, and the present can be very hurtful, just listening to the, the things that you're, you're talking about. But I think the now, what in all of that is taking an opportunity to humanize people yeah. who have been a part of the criminal justice system or have been affected or influenced by it. Maybe that is watching. There's so many different things they do like locked up or that what not locked up. It's, it's like, I, I can't think about putting the something else Netflix did, but they just talk to criminal people that are behind bars and get the real story about like about how they are actually I think it's called one time or one one first step or something like that just talking to them and making them humans period just incarcerated period people period but you will notice a lot of those stories are from people of color there aren't you know European Americans in there but it will kind of get you an understanding of that they're like humans they're not less than and I think we do see when we talk about this why would we even talk about issues behind bars because these are also humans that will ultimately and we hopefully want some of them to come back into society. exactly that hopefully ultimately they will be back in society in some way shape or form and even looking at why why are we now trying to make sure that these folks can vote when they come back into society why was that taken from them just humanizing folks in the criminalization uh, criminal justice system and understanding that yes non-white people are disproportionately affected by this system and if you don't take time to get closer to your implicit bias you're also supporting this system yeah and i would add to that it's like it is scary as a white person to admit that you have these preconceived notions that black people are bad because it's i, I don't know if i've had that thought but you definitely have the thought where i didn't have empathy for people that were in prison, you know, it was just easy to not see them as a person. And so I would be charged white people to sit with that feeling that you have those biases, 
it's not necessarily, I'm not giving anyone an out, but it's not necessarily because you want to believe that. It's just messages that have been given to us over and over again. You know what I mean? Because I look at myself, I'm like, how can I have these biases? I thought, you know, I thought I was a great person. What's, what's wrong with me? Because I think I've had these thoughts. Mm -hmm. I would argue I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with me for having the thoughts. They've been planted there or seen throughout in the media. Um, and so it's because it's it, like you said, it's very uncomfortable to admit that to yourself. It's scary. It's like, oh my God, I don't want to be a bad person because we don't want to, who wants to think of us ourselves as bad, you know? Exactly. I think, I think you have to, to get people to really engage with their implicit bias. I think you have to ask them comparative questions. I think I found, I find that useful. So like yeah. one thing is you could ask them, you know, how do you feel, just imagine, you know, a young white boy, you know, maybe he's in like sixth grade and he's peddling like, you know, marijuana in the middle school. Like, how do you feel about him? What should be done about him? Right. And then people will probably tell you, oh, well, he's, he's just being delinquent. Like maybe we should, you know, get, put him into some sort of program and rehabilitate him or whatever. But then ask them, okay, well, how would you feel if he was black? And really think about if he was black and envision him like doing the exact same thing. How do you, how do, what does that trigger your, what's your initial reaction? And some people will be honest, and I think a lot of people would, will be honest, maybe not out loud, but on the inside. Yeah. Their initial yeah. reaction is, oh, he's dangerous. Yeah. He's the same setup, still, still a little kid, but yeah. he, he becomes dangerous. And then if they, and then the, the follow-up is, is, why is there that difference for you? And some people will be willing to go there and others won't, but I think it's at least trying to have these comparisons where the only difference is skin color and see how people react to that. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Comparative questions. I love that. I like it. Yeah. I like it a lot. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh I keep taking so, so much. What can, I love you. can we expect Thanks. your book? What can we expect this next? Yeah. What are you, what you said you're writing an article and then you have a book coming out. What, when can we expect yes. this? So right now I do, I have an, a recent essay that I wrote that is detailing a solitary confinement um, against black militants. And so that's in the eminent frame. Uh, right now, but I'm working on an article form, which is just big, like a longer form using more evidence uh, currently. And then the book, yeah, I'm, I'm busy working on it. I'm hoping to get it under review next year sometime with the publisher. Yes. So we shall see. Fingers crossed. <laughs> it's already done, and yeah. we've already bought our copies. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's done. I do have a full draft. So I'm just kind of polishing it up right now and, and preparing to submit it in January. That's Congratulations. Hello, Curly Professor. Yeah, hey, girl. We're so proud of you. I see you over there. <laughs> <laughs> and then you said you're going to New Jersey. Tell the people why you're going to New Jersey. Yeah. Yes, I'll be going to New Jersey in November because in January I'm starting at Rutgers as an assistant professor. <laughs> I feel smarter knowing you. I know. At least I do. <laughs> I get 3% more smartness because exactly. I had this conversation with you. Exactly. 3%. 3%. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Got to have more conversations with you, then I'll get up there. Yes, I'd love to be back. I'd love yes. to be Oh, for sure. Anytime. Engaging I don't care if you think of something. We don't care. Yeah. If you're like, you know what, y'all, we need to talk about this. Yeah, please do. We're there. Yeah. All right. I'll bug you. Yeah. Do it. Thank you for being in our neighborhood. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is so, it's, 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 it's hard stuff to talk about, but you all make it fun in the end. Thank you. I'm glad we end on a happy day. Yeah. yeah. We try to. 
We tried to. <laughs> I'm hugging you. You see my hands over Virtu here? Virtual hug. <laughs> yeah, we call those bugs. <laughs> All right. Well, you try to enjoy your day for whatever's worth left of it. You conferencing. You said no? Yes, no? Oh, not, not today. No, today's writing day. The rest of the day. Wow, good for you. Oh my God, God bless your heart. Yeah, I know. Writing is hard. I have a journalism degree, so I had to write a lot. And it's like, I love it, but hate it. You know what I mean? Writing like, is frustrating because my thoughts are faster than my fingers and my hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. I'll be right on. I knew that was, I just had something good and I lost it. It's gone forever. Oh you know what? You That means you would benefit from, um, Talking into your phone, like Google Voice, yeah, transcribed. Yeah, I do. Yeah. That's I, what I do. I go through the same thing because I would try to journal just to be mental health better. And I was like, Jackie, I can't do this. It pisses me off because the same thing. I'm just even typing. I can't. She's like, just talk. And it's been so helpful. Just record yourself. That's from being going, like I told her, that's, that's from therapy. <laughs> so smart. Yes. That's from prolonged exposure therapy. Yeah. Like, oh. I can say stuff and still gain something from it. But yeah. Really can. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We'll hold you up. We'll yeah, hold you up. Thank you, man. Kiss the babies. I know. I'm and thank the husband. Yeah. <laughs> for the time that he, they allow us to share with you. Yes. Thank you. I will. I will. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Talk to you later. Yeah. Bye.